Hello and welcome to PRS Radio Denang and Hoi An. First of all, I hope everybody had a wonderful Tet holiday. Whether you stayed in the local area or you took the quarantine return risk of heading further afield. My name is Eugene Leonard. This community podcast station was started by me in Shenzhen, China in June 2019 to document the personal stories and background of long-term expats in the community as well as local residents. Well, COVID-19 changed everything for everybody, everywhere. Nobody ever expected the Mexican beer virus Corona. So I now find myself living in Hoi An. So I have restarted this station under the name PRS Radio Denang and Hoi An with the same aims. On today's episode, we will talk to a friend of mine, Eaton Levy, or Rasputin, as I've nicknamed him. From this day forward, Eaton will forever be known as the Virgin of PRS Radio Denang and Hoi An. Now the lads from Baltimore in the US of A. Most people when they think of Baltimore will think of Jimmy McNulty and the brilliant TV series The Wire. Well I can tell you this, Eaton has never even heard of McNulty or The Wire, which is kind of depressing. Young kids these days, I'll have to forgive the lad. Eaton is the truly innovative and inspirational founder of Dork Dancing, which is a fantastic mental health initiative sweeping Da Nang and further afield, including online through his digital Dork Dancing. I'm really proud to be a patron of Dork Dancing. I encourage you to do the same. Take a look at his website, dorkdancing.com. On this episode, we talk about dork dancing as well as Ethan's experience of living with bipolar. We discuss mental health matters in general. This is this this podcast was a real joy to record, and I'm really grateful to Ethan for coming on the show. Podcasts on PRS Radio Denang and Hoi An are long form, lasting usually between 45 minutes and an hour. So we get a chance to take a real deep dive into the significant personal stories and experiences of each guest. A Latin mantra that I have come to love and live by is Solvator Ambulando. It loosely translates as, it is solved by walking. My advice to you, get your trainers on, get out for a walk while listening to some podcast therapy or TerraPod on PRS Radio Denang and Hoi An. Enjoy the Eaton Levy episode. Ethan Levy, welcome to PRS Radio Danang and Hoi An. You are our maiden guest on the show. How are you feeling today? Feeling good. Thank you so much for, for inviting me and for being here. Now you're looking very relaxed, Ethan. I know you and Sierra were away on a, a beautiful holiday in Pungya. How did that go for you guys? Yeah, it was great. It was beautiful. Um, not, not too many people were traveling, so we had a lot of time and space uh, for ourselves and got to explore a bunch of good, cool caves. Mm-hmm. How's Sierra? She's doing good. Yeah, we we uh, yeah had a really good time. Um, yeah, the 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 caves were something else, sort of like out of this world. So yeah, really really cool to experience that together. So you're still together. That's basically <laughs> what I'm trying to get at. You, yeah, you were away yeah. for ten days together. Yeah, yeah, we got along. We got along. <laughs> yeah, not not rosy the whole time, but it was great. <laughs> Excellent. We we can talk about the not rosy another time when we switch <laughs> off the uh, microphones. <laughs> <laughs> sure she'd love that now Ethan obviously I didn't uh, bring you here today well even though I'm in your apartment uh, to talk about your holiday with Sierra and Pungya um, what I would like to talk to you about is the wonderful initiative that you have started here in Da Nang called Dork Dancing 
But before we get to dark dancing, I'm going to take a, a, a journey through your life, so to speak. Now, I've spent all morning looking through your website, fantastic mm -hmm. website, um, some amazing stories in there, your own personal stories and stories from people with dark dancing. But where I would like to start your story, initially, I thought we would start it in Shenzhen because that's where uh, we both, we have a common link to Shenzhen and it, this was started as PRS Radio Shenzhen. Um, but then when I took a look through your website, I thought there, there's no way I can start this story anywhere else but Honduras. Mm. Now you went to Honduras in 2011, a decade ago now. Yeah, <laughs> hard, wow. hard to believe. Now, <laughs> the story on your website really, really, it, it really stood out for me. Mm. You said on it, my, my trip to Honduras really impacted me. Before Honduras, my values fell heavily on money, for the pursuit of money. This experience introduced new questions, frameworks, and priorities. Because of this trip, I became more interested in social entrepreneurship, a field that would combine my natural interest in entrepreneurship with the desire to meaningfully contribute. You also said the memories of the cruel, unfair, hidden realm of a Honduran orphanage the so-called home for over 200 children will never leave me. You talked about a, f a feeling of ineptitude and frustration. Now, this story was very powerful. And my question to you is, to what extent has your life decisions by been influenced since by your time in Honduras? And can you give us some examples? Yeah. Yeah. You know, as a kid, uh, your experience of the world, you're, you're very, uh, it's a very impressionable age when, when you're young and you don't really know what the world is around you until you sort of step outside. And for me, one of my yeah, most early experiences of, of stepping outside was actually stepping outside my zip code, my community. And for me, yeah, that was that trip to Honduras. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, that was, it was the first time I sort of experienced and saw hardship in a completely different lens and a completely different light and just seeing these kids they um <clears throat> their, their their reality their world entirely different from mine and it was just a wake-up call almost maybe like a loss of innocence of sorts that i think if you study characters or storylines and, and things like that there's and even if you reflect on your own life a moment of loss of innocence and for me uh that that was probably it um so yeah, ever since then, it just like woke me up and made me think about others in a way that I hadn't before. Um, before that trip, I was very pretty self-centered. I was the youngest of three kids and uh, probably would classify myself as a bit spoiled and, and centered thinking and just seeing that there is real problems out in the world uh, connected me to something, you know, that there, there's a there's a big world out there with a lot of problems. Um, and to see, to see the pain and, and, and difficulty that I witnessed there, that, that just, that really uh, stuck with me. I, I can completely, I can completely see that in your writing because you, you, the title of the article is The Great Despair of Disparity. And 
you know, if I can give you one really good compliment, you, your uh, the titles of your articles really, <laughs> they really stick in the mind. Mm. Um, can you give us a deeper insight into that mm. experience in Honduras? Uh, what you actually saw, what you did during that time that affected you so deeply? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was basically an orphanage and uh, walking there, there's yeah, about 200 or so kids and these kids basically don't have any sort of contact with um, experiences of love. Um, if you sort of think of it from an emotional uh, perspective, they don't have parents. Um, probably getting food is, is a challenge. Uh, I remember just a lot of the sensations just uh, really maybe, uh, I, don't, I don't know how much, like, I remember a foul smell and, and all these things. It was just really, uh, it was a different world just, just walking in there. But all they wanted to do was play. And they just had such uh, an incredible, they were just so happy just by the presence of, of, of strangers to, to spend time with them. Um, and then there's one moment in particular where um, I saw a nine-year-old basically laying or sleeping in uh, a crib. And uh, this this uh, human was uh, grew up in the closet and uh, devoid of sunlight and, and human touch and contact and love. And to see a nine-year-old, the body of a nine-year-old, have the capacity of uh, a baby was just, that was something that really, really stuck with me. So just a um, really powerful experience and uh, tried my best to interpret those experiences and, and take, take some stuff away from it. It's really powerful, Ethan. I wonder when I look at you sometimes, do you still carry the weight of Honduras on your shoulders in wanting to change? Because mm. I, I read in the article, you very powerfully wrote, am I complicit if I do not commit to fixing what I see as wrong? One hundred percent. I mean, um, it's it's ironically something that I'm not too conscious of. I don't think actively about my experience of Honduras, but I think that that experience and sort of the insight that I gained from there was something that I tried to um, just incorporate into my worldview and perspective, and just always think about um, the injustice or the unfairness or the the challenges and the pain of the world while it's not mine it's a world that I live in and uh, to not do anything about it just I, I don't know how I incorporated the, this thinking or you know because it's, it's not too conscious anymore but um, yeah maybe maybe it was a slow process over time but uh, yeah sort of the conclusion is that I, I need to do something I, I'm have an entirely different life, entirely uh, different upbringing uh, with an abundance of love. And here, com contrasting my life with, with these kids, um, I need to or I can, uh, and I must sort of do something. And uh, yeah, so maybe since then, I carried a sense of, uh, yeah, it, it led to a lot of questions. And these are questions I've grappled with uh, over a number of years, and I've tried to respond as uh, productively and as I can. And you're doing a brilliant job. Let me tell you <laughs> that. You, you use a beautiful 
phrase in there, you grew up with an abundance of love. And that was, that was really, it was really evident in your writing on a number of occasions. You spoke about uh, how, how much you loved your home that was getting sold and your father was a professor at John Hopkins University. Your mother was a piano teacher and how you had a really close-knit family. Um, it, it came across as a really beautiful, normal American family. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. It's it, hard to define or understand what normal is. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at a picture, uh, picture of us, uh, you know, uh, of, of the family and what it looks like and the profile, maybe it's uh, the type of image that a lot of people would think of uh, when they think of like uh, American family. The, the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, what, what you mentioned there, you, you called it a loss of innocence. Um, I, I think it was more uh, a greater awareness was developed in Honduras of what was going on around mm. the world, and maybe that's just something you hadn't seen before. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, entirely. It's just. Yeah, extremely different. Um, and I've found that differences are, are where a lot of uh, uh, seeking experiences or realities or places that are different than yours has been really helpful for me to, to learn and grow. And uh, yeah, through difference, you can be challenged in different ways. Your, your perspective, your values, the way you see things, think about things. Okay. Ethan... You said in the article that you came away, you wanted to do something. The message was clear, do something. When you came back to the States after your time in Honduras, how did you set about doing something as such? <laughs> well, what was your what was your plan? Mm. As So this trip was, I was only a high schooler. Um, so it made me confused more than anything. And I think that's what what I share in the article is sort of a line of thinking, just documenting my experience and presenting questions at the end. And I had always grappled with what do I do, what can I do, and that took me years to try and figure out what can I do. Um, so that that was a, a curiosity of mine for, for many years. Um, I, I didn't know exactly what to do or what I could do. All that I knew is that I wanted to do something. I want to be helpful. And it's actually a very, I think, innate human desire. I mean, uh, the, the human experience and people's, uh, how people decide to live their lives varies tremendously. But I do believe that uh, most, there's something deep down within us that just wants to, to help others. Um, yeah. So nothing incredibly unique, I, I don't think, just uh, tapping into into that um, human trait. A spark was lit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> now, Eaton, life hasn't been a bed of roses for you mm -hmm. uh, since that trip. Um, I read a really, really poignant, a really, really... fascinating article that you wrote about living with bipolar and you know I want you to just explain to people what bipolar means what it looks like for you because I, I said to somebody yesterday if you stop 10 people on the street and said to them how oh, can you explain to me what somebody with 
bipolar uh, is can you give me some words or mm. nobody would be able to do it mm. you know people just look at it and go and <laughs> I really like what you wrote bipolar for me doesn't look like the kind of crazy you might imagine when you hear the word and that's <laughs> it like that that's the that's the word people go oh bipolar crazy mm. mental illness crazy can you explain in simple terms I'm mm -hmm. Irish <laughs> what bipolar looks like for you yeah um so i think what what it looks like for me i think that's a the perfect question because what i've learned as i have conversations with people about bipolar or that diagnosis it does really look different uh for each person um for me i didn't even know what mental illness was or um what bipolar was and all these things um until i guess I've had I had personal lived experiences of uh, difficult times in my life, and then an education of sorts from others on what is it. Um, so the technical response, as I understand, it's a chemical imbalance in the brain. Um, that's maybe what a scientific uh, community would say. Um, for me. Um, Having bipolar, uh, you don't really so much think about the chemicals in your brain. You just have your day-to-day -day experience. And uh, for me, in my experience, it has sort of manifested in a couple uh, really scary times of being unwell and being uncertain and confused and interpreting my reality. But day-to-day uh, -day having uh, what I feel a quite normal and stable emotional experience so um, yeah I, I don't know if I quite simply captured a, a definition or, or anything but but for me my experience of bipolar has been uh, just living a pretty normal life and then just a couple weeks and a couple months that were a little more difficult to, to uh, understand or relate or uh, live live in a healthy way during those those uh, difficult times. Yeah, we will get into those two episodes in a moment, Ethan, because mm. I can completely relate to one of them. Um, there are two types of bipolar, isn't that mm. correct? Yes, yeah, so uh, there's bipolar type one and bipolar type two. Uh, I have type one, so um, that type uh, typically struggles more with mania, so uh, Traditionally, bipolar, uh, an oscillation or a swing between uh, episodes or experience of mania and experiences of depression. And as uh, someone with the type 1 diagnosis, I've struggled more with uh, the experiences or episodes of mania. And um, after or during experiences of, of mania, that can lead to uh, a state or experience of psychosis. And psychosis, uh, you're psychotic, you know, you, you might hear that language or that, that word a lot, uh, is actually like entering a dreamlike state. Um, so bipolar type 1 struggles more with the highs and then an experience of psychosis and bipolar type 2 um, ex uh, experiences the depressive side more um, with at least one hypomanic uh, episode. If that's what I understand. Maybe I my own education isn't uh, perfect on that, but that's that's what I think it is. Um, Not a problem, Aiden. Thank you very much for that. Now, you alluded to uh, a couple of uh, episodes in your life, a couple of manic episodes. 
uh, the first one coming when you were 19 years old, you had your first psychotic break. I read through this story this morning. I, I had read it a while back, and it's an incredible piece of writing. And first of all, I want to commend you for the courage that you have shown in writing this, in sharing it with the world, because it is it is so worthwhile for people to read about this to know that well I guess to know that you can come through episodes like this mm. and thrive afterwards it's not about surviving thriving afterwards um, mm. it's such a powerful story can you can you go into this with us please um, about your first psychotic break yeah certainly thank, thank, thanks for that um, yeah so I was 19 years old and uh, as I mentioned earlier I had no experience or really awareness of mental illness or what that was until I guess I experienced it myself and not while I was in it, but afterwards. Um, so, um, yeah, during that time I was really um, not taking care of myself in, in the very basic ways, like not getting good sleep, not uh, feeding myself well, and uh, basic sort of self-care 101 things that I wasn't doing. And uh, I was really consumed by... Um, entrepreneurial work and I was uh, competing for a business competition trying to win money and uh, trying to start a business and kind of fell into that and uh, got consumed entirely by uh, that work and it's really difficult to explain uh, the transition between overworking and not taking care of yourself to uh, ending up basically uh, in a psychiatric hospital, but um, during uh, experiences of mania, you're really excited and you feel really good, you feel on top of the world, and you physically are so, you're feeling so great that you can't like fall asleep, you wouldn't want to fall asleep because your experience of life is so uh, incredible, you're, you're uh, in a very uh, high place, and so like biologically it's very difficult to sleep and so after a number of nights you know one two three four maybe um, nights of either sleeping a couple hours or not sleeping at all uh, sleep is really helpful for grounding you uh, and uh, but basically without sleep it's it's can be easy to uh, lose uh, a, a train uh, lose a, a healthy way of thinking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so basically that's what happened to me. I lost sleep and uh, fell into... My way of thinking didn't connect the dots very well. And I uh, I became uh, very paranoid and concerned and because you were experiencing things that are, are strange and it's it's hard to... Uh, understand and interpret and so your mind goes to different places trying to figure out what's happening and why and uh, yeah I, I experienced uh, a heightened sense of paranoia and basically came up with this delusion that uh, I was the target of uh, a con conspiracy theory and uh, that I was uh, being blackmailed to do something I didn't want to do and uh, basically everyone that I was looking at was uh, um, possibly threatening and so when you believe that you're in incredible danger your behavior changes and you do things to survive because that's the reality that you're in and uh, 
I ended up somehow like banging my head against the tree uh, because of some misunderstanding. And then uh, campus police basically saw that my behavior was strange. And then that's what uh, led me to the psychiatric uh, hospital. And, and there, the, the, the uh, confusing experiences uh, continued. <laughs> but that's a, a little explanation of what that episode was um, and how I got there. Looking back on that moment, or well, it wasn't a moment, it was two months it went, the mm. first episode was, what did you learn from it? What was the most powerful learning? And how do you feel right now talking about that as well? I'm, I'm, yeah. how, how does it make you feel reflecting back on mm. that moment in your life? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a tremendous, tremendous question. <laughs> um, I think just reflecting back on it, um, typically these moments are maybe a little more difficult to reflect on or think about because they were so maybe painful. But um, I think these are the experiences that are maybe most worthwhile reflecting on because of what you might be able to learn about it. And for me, after those experiences, they were so disorienting that I was like, why did this happen? Like, this came out of nowhere. Like, why did this, why did this happen? There's no way for me to explain. Like, that was such a strange thing um, that I became very thirsty for an explanation. I wanted to know why did that happen, and, and no one's telling me. So uh, um, the importance of looking at these experiences became more clear over time. Um, and so just speaking about it now, I think it can be difficult um, because you're maybe reliving or thinking back into a darker time, but um, it's extremely important because of what you can learn. Um, and I think for me, there's, there's a lot of things that I uh, learned from that experience. Um, I think probably one of the biggest ones is just my vulnerability, my ability. Uh, you know, I thought it felt like a psychologically uh, near-death experience. So I was like, wow, like that was close. Um, and then I think it gave me a lot of empathy, um, empathy a type of empathy that I didn't have before uh, because it felt that I had lived in a very dark place. And um, having visited that place, I guess it became easier for me to maybe adopt different perspectives and, and think about other people in a more humane or human way. Um, so I think empathy was probably the biggest like emotional value that I took away from that. Um, definitely knocked me down a, a number of levels, but I think, uh, you know, in the end, that was maybe, <laughs> you know, always try to uh, take what you can from, from difficult experiences, and, and uh, I think that was moving forward, and day to day, that's a look, look to those experiences as a kind of uh, strength, um, which is helpful psychologically. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, it can. It must have been a real shock to the system for a nineteen-year-old to realize that suddenly you're not invincible. Mm, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> when when you talked about it, or when you wrote about it in your article, I was fascinated by this. Was the overworking? You were led by passion. You said my excitement turned it turned into hypomania, and when I was reading this. 
I got the sense that you were getting high without the drugs, but you were getting high from the, the, the adrenaline of all the work you were doing and these mm. grand plans and the grandiosity and you're mm. going to take over the world. And right. yeah, it, it, it's, it's almost like, a, you know, the, the adrenaline that a stand-up comedian gets from standing on stage when the show goes well or yeah. when it doesn't go well, it's a nightmare. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> maybe so, yeah. Maybe there's some comparisons there. <laughs> now, you said this went on for six to eight weeks. Now, there's something, something really fascinating in this article can you explain to us the important role of your brothers in your recovery? Mm. As opposed to your parents. Now, I know your parents played a very important role in the recovery, but you yeah. talked about there was just something different about the role your brothers played. Can you sort of pinpoint what that was? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so at the time, uh, I was sort of trapped in delusional thinking, and my understanding of the world and the reality around me was a bit sideways or off and it was really uncomfortable or, or difficult to explain the specifics of my delusions or the ideas or my concerns my fears it was difficult to share my fears because when maybe speaking about it out loud it would either there was there's the fear of of no one listening or no one believing or no one you know just sort of no one would believe me. Um, and then I think also maybe a fear of vocalizing my fears maybe would make it more possible that it would become true. So there's uh, a number of fears that I was working with. But uh, my brothers did listen to me in a way or provided a type of emotional safety um, in a way that was unique to maybe my relationship with them or the way that they were speaking with me. Um, but they did a very good job at giving me the potential to be right. And um, that gave me f faith or comfort that I could share these thoughts without having them be shot down right, right away and things like that. And so um, it was a basic acknowledgement and a, a type of listening that uh, they lent me that was really helpful to feel safe in, in sharing specific fears. Um, and even though my parents were really loving and there for, for support, if I maybe shared some things, uh, they, would, they would maybe have a different language of relating to those fears than, than my brothers. And so that's something that I think uh, was really powerful in, in my recovery uh, in having their support and having them listen in a really uh, powerful way and uh, giving me space to explore my 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 thoughts yeah and i guess they were the age the age uh you you were probably close together in age mm. compared to your parents probably contributed as well yeah certainly yeah yeah um yes entirely there's a, a unique sibling bond and shared experiences and history and relatability uh that, that makes a huge huge difference as well you wrote that you never understood the psychological power of fear until it literally immobilized me. I'm guessing the greatest fear during that time for you may have been that this is never going to end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, 
I didn't know what the end was going to look like, <laughs> mm. but I thought the end was either like my, my, my end, like my life was either really close, like to ending, uh, because of my, my thoughts. And I didn't know what that basically death would look like. I, and I imagined all, all sorts of scary ideas. And then that was really scary. Um, and yeah, just a lot of the specifics of my my thoughts were, were scary. Um, and when I talk about there immobilized me, yeah, I had a, a moment of paralysis um, in, in the hospital and uh, that occurred uh, in reaction to the sight of a plastic knife. And so like that can give you a sense a little bit of uh, maybe how, how difficult of uh, an interpretation of of that uh, of that knife uh, was but uh, yeah so the fear yeah the, a lot of different fears and was sort of consumed by paranoia and and things like that um, and yeah I didn't didn't really know what was happening but so glad I was able to escape that that way of thinking how did you escape that what was the process like after about the six to eight weeks and then the subsequent uh, recovery even yeah um, yeah, so as you noted, my, my brothers uh, played a big role. So once I was able to speak about the specifics of my fears, um, my brothers and eventually parents and, uh, and, and others are able, once those fears were vocalized, could start questioning or challenging maybe the thought process or the, the rationality of those fears. And so it was a kind of problem-solving uh, process of like, okay, that maybe that's true, but there's also different ways to think about it. And then learning how to think about things differently without ex like believing in, in a, in one specific, uh, reality or one specific way. So it was a, a practice and pattern of thinking in different ways that was, uh, that I, that I did so I could realize that I was in fact wrong and I had constructed uh, a false reality. And then uh, I, I did also have some uh, professional help from, from doctors and was taking medication and so maybe uh, you know the, the chemicals and, and things in the brain were helped by the medication uh, as well. So it was a combination of uh, therapy, medication, and, and uh, love and support from my family. Um, and for me, I think the support from my family was the most consequential in helping me uh, recover. And I was just getting to that because it comes across so often in your writing, the love, the support of your family uh, throughout this period uh, with your first manic episode and your second manic episode. And one of the, one of the headlines that really really caught my attention uh, yesterday when I was reading through your thing was, yes, I'm privileged. Yes, it's relevant. <laughs> can, can you yeah. talk to me about uh, what do you mean by that and how important was this privilege in your recovery? Yeah. Well, uh, maybe returning to that experience in Honduras, um, I didn't really have quite the understanding of how much I had until I saw how much others do not have. Um, and understanding that that difference, um, that difference in attention, that difference in care, that difference in 
having parents, having, you know, like there, there's, there's just so many things I could say, but that difference is fundamentally what set me up for being able to live, live the life, like a, a secure life. Um, and there's so many, there's, uh, millions, billions of, of people in, in real suffering, um, day to day with things like hunger and, um, shelter base, basic needs. Um, and so, yeah, the title of that, yes, I'm privileged. Yes, it's relevant. Um, I think that's an important thing to acknowledge because so many people do not have the type of access or care required to, to have the opportunity to live a functioning life. Um, and so with my circumstances, not only do I get to live a functioning life, but I have the opportunity to live a flourishing life. And that's because of uh, the support and security uh, and the foundation and background that uh, I have. So you, you need to acknowledge that in order to have any conversation because everyone's coming from, from uh, different places. I added a comment last night under this article and it was something I read a few months back from Brené Brown what separates privilege from entitlement is gratitude and I can see that there is an abundance of gratitude in all your work because uh, as you so rightly write here so rightly write I like that <laughs> <laughs> write that down <laughs> so you so rightly write that I could have ended up on the streets still confused living in a perpetual state of delusion and then you go on to say you can't expect a person living in delusion to fend for himself yeah uh, th this conversation of privilege extends tremendously to issues and challenges with those experiencing uh, mental illness. So certainly, yeah, as, as just described, like the role and the support of my family and, you know, the, the care and all those things, if I didn't have that, I, as you mentioned, I could totally see myself trapped in that way of thinking. And then I, living a life, um, I don't know what that would look like, but it would be very scary, very difficult, probably wouldn't be here. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, it's a different type of, and speaking of empathy, like if I'm walking down the streets and you know, in, in American cities, you know, homelessness is a big, big problem. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a number of those people can maybe have, uh, different behaviors or, uh, and may, I think a percentage of them are experiencing uh, or suffer from mental illness. And I can maybe empathize or understand or relate a little bit better um, to, to challenges and issues like that. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that, 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 that quote was, <laughs> that's very, that's a very uh, kind and yeah, I think great, great quote. Um, because I, I also write, yeah, I, I can feel guilty about the, the privilege that I have and why do I have and others do not and in, in certain circumstances. And uh, the question that I have or carried is what, what can I do with this to try and uh, be, be, do something and be helpful? Okay, please stop looking at my notes on you. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I can see the eyes wandering over. <laughs> what you what you actually write, Ethan, is you'd like to increase your return on privilege because you see you are grateful for the privilege you have though you deeply wish it did not come at the expense of others. I love that term, your return on privilege. How are you going to, uh, how, how, are you go, how, how are you going to go about that? Cashing yeah. in your return on privilege? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a curiosity of mine that I carry day to day, so I don't feel like I ever, a lot of the questions that you have are really good questions, but I don't have complete answers to. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do think gratitude is a is a is a good start. Just being aware and being grateful. But then, um, then there's a problem solving question of how can I be useful to others given my position or who I am or where where I am in the world. And a lot of people, you know, you go to school and you 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 uh, a lot of people, you know, they have dreams of for the, and visions for their lives of what can I do to to make a difference. And if you're asking that question, I think. That's tremendous progress because I think that's the right question to ask. And so long as you're asking that question and actively pursuing it, over time you'll figure out what that looks like for you. Um, and so for me, number of years not knowing what to do or how I can be helpful and how to create uh, an impact or, or make a difference for others didn't didn't have an answer and uh, can still struggle with that. But um, yeah, I was confused by by that question for for a number of years, and uh, I guess now recently have have a bit more of an understanding of ways that I can be useful um, and supportive and uh, cash in on the return on privilege a little bit, um, and uh, it involved looking inward and looking towards my story, and even now just speaking about issues related to mental health. Uh, I feel, because of my personal experiences, a bit more qualified to uh, speak about mental health and issues in that and uh, um, try to advocate and raise awareness for, for these, these types of things. Um, so that's what I've been focused on recently and uh, what we're having a conversation about. So I think something about mental health uh, has been really exciting for me. Well, let me tell you, you're doing an absolutely brilliant job, Ethan, and I'm incredibly proud of uh, everything you're doing here in Da Nang for a start and everything you did uh, over the course of your life. Uh, I'm, I'm inspired by you, actually. I'm completely inspired by you. You're, you're, uh, you're an excellent member of the community, and Da Nang is lucky to have you uh, here, actually. I, I completely mean that because you're really helping the community in so many different ways, which we're going to get into pretty soon. Now, you talked about making the invisible visible when you're talking about mental health. You say mental health is invisible. There can be privilege in the illness's invisibility. But that invisibility contributes to the stigma that creates conflict in the first place. When you talk about being open and being visible, you say being open takes intention and consideration. When I read this earlier, I went, wow, that's so on the money. It's mm -hmm. absolutely perfect. The intention and the consideration. What consideration did you have to take into 
mind when you decided to share your story publicly? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess there's been different contexts of, uh, of sharing. Um, of course, there was an initial challenge of sharing with my brothers, sharing with family, sharing with friends. So uh, I learned to share in private spaces. Um, but then sharing these experiences more publicly is an entirely different question and uh, a different challenge of sorts. And so um, something that was really helpful in my decision to from or my uh, yeah because for years I, I didn't share and I wasn't open about these experiences and only recently have I decided to be open um, it kind of returned to those questions and conversations we we're having earlier of how can I be helpful how can I make a difference how can I and but basically thinking about other people and so with COVID-19 and lockdown uh, observed and noticed, wow, this world is really crazy times right now. And people are, are struggling in, in big ways in, you know, there's the physical virus, there's economic challenges, and uh, there's a long laundry list of hardship. And underneath this current of hardships is uh, there's mental health uh, and uh I think is an underlying theme or underlying challenge with, with all of these things. And so objective, like statistically, like mental illnesses on the rise, like depression, anxiety, all this uncertainty, very difficult to handle, suicide. Um, so observing that in the world, it's like, okay, um, this is a big problem. Uh, I have a mental health story. I have mental health experiences and, um, maybe by sharing my story, I can be helpful in, in this huge, huge problem. Um, and I didn't know exactly what that would look like or, or anything, but even if my story helped a couple people, then, then it would be worth it. But um, before I was really consumed by the insecurity and, and trap and, and fear of judgment, what might other people think of it, about me? But that became really easy to overcome when I thought about the potential or power of my story to help. And so when I thought about other people uh, a little bit more and my own fears and thought about myself uh, a little bit less, ironically, I was able to show up more and put myself out there more. And so, uh, yeah, I just think before I was uh, really scared and, and fearful and I didn't really want to acknowledge it and, and look at it and didn't think it was too important. And uh, yeah, after lockdown and COVID-19, I just went inwards and thought that um, it, it would be really great to, or an opportunity to uh, maybe make a difference or do something uh, related to this, this cause, issue, problem, challenge. Uh, yeah. What, was, what really stood out for me as well, you, you said... You said there that even if your story can help one person, you've made a difference. Hmm. Even if your story can help you personally, yourself, that's made a huge difference as well. Right. Yeah, entirely. Yeah, and, and I think that's like, that's the biggest step. It's like once you can help yourself, then whoa, <laughs> that is good stuff. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I think, healing too in my um 
decision or uh, that that took place when I started sharing. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, hundred percent. Just starting with yourself. Uh, that's most of of the battle. And when you can do that, then mm -hmm. the rest is a lot easier. It was uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, that said, "In order to help others, first you have to be able to help yourself." And to help yourself, you have to look deep inside yourself, something like that. Mm. So you, you definitely did that work. Hundred mm. percent. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I don't know. I, I feel like I'm doing that work every day, but um, yeah, that's that's entirely. Uh, I've, I've yeah, can't can't agree more. Um, and it takes yeah, it's hard. It it takes time, and I think having patience with yourself um, is really important as well. Yeah acceptance and courage are very important too mm. you said i really love the sickness feels unattractive but in in authenticity i always struggle with that word <laughs> inauthenticity <laughs> feels worse mm. and that sort of it kind of reminds me what uh, eckhart tolle said living up to an image of yourself mm. uh, is inauthentic living mm. uh, i completely i completely applaud what you're doing by sharing your story because you can inspire many more people to do the same. And like I read in the personal stories of dark dancing, you, you're you're definitely doing that. Mm. What were the risks involved? Of sharing the story? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, the fear of sharing is uh, maybe judgment. Um, so I think that's probably uh, a valid fear and a valid risk. Uh, I guess people can judge you for what you share, whatever your experience is, uh, because there's so much stigma around mental health. Uh, what I can safely say from my ex experience sharing, that is not what happened to me, um, or that's not what I've experienced. It's instead of judgment and scrutiny, um, basically what I wrote and what I shared has been received incredibly well with tremendous support from family, friends, and even strangers. And um, I do think that the decision to, sh to share the story has um, made, le left an impact on, on some people. And because of that, that makes me feel, feel better. Um, so yeah, it was the, the, the risk could be judgment. But from my own personal experience, um, most of that fear and that, that risk was, I think, a little more in my head, more hypothetical than real. Um, of course, maybe people can read your story and they can judge you. Um, but then it's a question of, is that the right person that you want to engage with and interact with? And so then it becomes mm -hmm. a question of who's in your circle and whose voice matters and who, what, what type of energy do you want around you? Um, so yeah, judgment. Uh, a lot of people are concerned about like maybe employers or uh, uh, a stranger if you're gonna like uh, date someone and like someone sees that oh do you want them knowing that about you uh, so those are valid concerns because when you're public you're public and anyone can read it um, but I think when you understand your reason why you're sharing um, then you can gain a lot of reassurance and, and strength in understanding in understanding that. Absolutely. And it goes back to what we talked about at the start, intention and consideration. Right. And as you rightly 
said in the middle of that, you can't control or predict the perception of other people. But you, all you can do is work on yourself so long and have confidence in what you're doing. Um, I, I, this is beautiful. And I think this could be the greatest piece of advice you've written in here for people around this issue of sharing. You said that living aligned and authentically, being open with your story is the biggest gift you have given yourself. Mm. That's very, very powerful. I'm not sure you're, you're aware of how powerful that is. Mm. It's a great piece of advice for people. Yeah. I mean, there has been a tremendous shift in energy in my relationship with myself in my own esteem in my own life journey since really being able to understand and share my story um before i I was always you know i had a lot of questions and concerns and doubts and all these things and um that was sort of trapped inside and so yeah looking inward reflecting on the story trying to understand it um that really improved my relationship with myself. And I think, you know, you live inside your, of your head, you wake up inside of your head, you go to sleep, same, same place, your relationship with you um, is, is uh, kind of the one that matters most. And so when you uh, <clears throat> can tell your story and own your story and be proud of your story, then for me and my relationship with myself has definitely, uh, improved and I, I do think the story was a, was a big part of that and being able to better understand and develop a healthier relationship with it very courageous Ethan um, this morning when I read this article I'm afraid of mental illness but you shouldn't be afraid of me one of the lines that really stood out for me it completely stood out I'm gonna tell you a little story about my time in rehab so you said losing my mind is my greatest fear because when you lose your mind you lose everything you went on to say that you believe in yourself in what's real but you have also made the mistake twice of believing in things that weren't real and for that reason I am afraid of mental illness now when you say losing my mind is my greatest fear I remember when I was in rehab, uh, it was 19 months ago, Hope Rehab in Thailand, and it was two days before I left rehab, it was my last counseling session with Joel Lewin, and I remember Joel said to me at the end of the session, Eugene, is there anything more I can do for you, is there anything I can see or, you know, help you with, and all, the only question that came to my mind was, can you tell me if I'm losing my mind or not? Because I, I think for me as well, when I read that, losing my mind is my greatest fear. I, I think it was a, at that time, it was only 19 months ago, I, I really thought that, you know, that's, that, that was happening. Yeah. I was like, is but you know what? I, I will tell you a funny story. You know, I almost was like sitting there going, Jesus, I don't have time for this right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I've got all this other crap going on and I'm really I don't yeah. have time to be losing my mind right, right, right. now <laughs> and it was almost I almost asked asked yeah. him that in that way <laughs> right right oh. but I, I completely understand what you're right. talking about here wow. mm. um, can you talk to us I just felt like sharing that yeah, story because yeah, it was yeah. quite funny uh, at the time can you, can you talk to me about this here about losing your mind being your greatest fear mm. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, losing your mind. It's uh, it's <laughs> who's got time for that? Um, <laughs> I'm busy. Yeah. I've got the shopping to do. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Um, I guess it's something we we take for granted. Uh, <laughs> having uh, a mind that that functions properly and whatnot. So yeah, having experienced. Uh, uh, a few weeks and months of uh, not not having a functioning mind certainly wouldn't want to uh, revisit revisit those places. And so, with a functioning mind, like uh, you're able to you're able to to live and be okay and and feel safe. And I think safety is uh, a big it's a it's a human need to feel safe. And so, uh, yeah, that I think. Can, can I put it thing. to you another way? Mm. To what extent does this fear both maybe drive you and restrict you in your actions, mm. in your life decisions, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, fear. I, I see the emotions or the language of fear and love on a spectrum. And uh, they're both very motivating forces. Um, fear can motivate you and love can motivate you. And... I too, I think, maybe even remember hearing from a monk <laughs> that they're the same thing or on opposite side of the, the coin. Uh, so you can learn. Maybe we're talking about the same thing, but opposites, and I don't, know, don't know, need to get the specifics of it. But um, they're very powerful motivating forces. And so there's one way of thinking of it: the fear of losing your mind and revisiting dark places. I want. I certainly want to do whatever I can to not do that again. And so that's a very powerful force to, for myself to try and live in a healthy way, and um, just take take good care of of myself. And so uh, that fear is very strong. And then uh, I guess on the other end, love a love of living a, a, an exciting, flourishing life where every day you you wake up uh, connected to the world and the people around you and uh, pursuing your purpose and fulfillment and feeling good. So both of those, whether it's you really want the, the good stuff in life and you really want to avoid the, the, the scary bad stuff in life, they're, they're both uh, um, very powerful motivators. And so restricting me, the fear, there's certainly things that, yeah, I try to monitor my own, my own uh thoughts and uh, I always have those experiences in the back of my head and because I'm speaking openly about mental health I actually feel much more safe because people know that I've had these challenges in the past so if I'm struggling I can talk with other people about these fears and about these struggles and that helps tremendously. Um, I think social relationships and people are an incredible uh, defense against mental illness uh, and against um, any internal psychological danger. Um, so speaking with other people and uh, community, friendships, relationships are very helpful um, to protect against against those, uh, the realization of, of those fears. Community is key, and I've said that to you a number of times, community, 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 and mm. emotional connection. Mm. And it's one of the aims of this podcast, actually, to get people to connect on an emotional level. 
because as uh, I've said, we're connected like never before mm. digitally, but that emotional connection, like who is this person? Mm. You know, you walk down the street, you can see somebody a hundred times and you, know, you might be friends with them on Facebook, but you don't actually know who they are. Right. And you know, the work you're doing within the community in that sphere is, is very powerful. Well, what practical steps do you take yourself when, when you're at home in little Eaton's Villa here up at, uh, I don't know where I am in Donang. <laughs> yeah, Fenton <laughs> is the street, but yeah. <laughs> it's a fantasy, fantasy street. <laughs> so wait, what was your question? You weren't listening. <laughs> Nobody listens to a ginger. <laughs> uh, uh, what practical steps do you take like when you're at home by yourself? like mm, For me my mental health, correct. Yeah, uh, even that, still working on day-to-day. -day. Something recently, I have found tremendous power in the simple things. Um, overthinking has been a trap uh, that I have fallen into, and I think it's a trap that many people fall into. And so for me, the basics, you know, trying to exercise, uh, developed a, a, a routine of going to the gym, um, going outside, reading books, eating well, um, uh, something yeah, that I obviously do and like to do is dance. That's helpful. Um, and then invest in people, um, be vulnerable in, in conversations and, and really try to develop high quality uh, relationships. But yeah, if I'm just in my room hanging out, uh, yeah, I, I do find your relationship to work, I think, is also a, a mental health topic, but I, I often... Uh, find a lot of comfort in, in the work that I'm doing and that makes me feel good. Um, so yeah, a number of things, but I do find that moving my body um, is one of the most effective ways to, to feel better. Well, this has been perfect timing to you. You mentioned the phrase invest in people mm. and moving your body. I think it's a perfect time for, for us to talk a little bit about dork dancing because mm. um, you founded this initiative here in Da Nang. Now, I was sitting at Roots one day, I, was, I think it was back around this time last year, mm. I had arrived January the 31st, I was sitting outside Roots, and I remember seeing a poster for dark dancing, and I looked at it and went, I like this. I instantly went, I like this, and went home, looked at it on Facebook, and went, oh, this is fantastic, whoever this guy is, is amazing, then I met you, well, it went downhill. <laughs> no, that's not true. I, I looked at the Facebook and went, I need to talk to this guy. I want. I would really want to meet him. And uh, I was. I was fascinated once I got to meet you and realized. You know, we had been in Shenzhen only in January for eight days around the same time. Mm. Um, can you talk to us about the the implementation or the introduction or you know you come up with a better mm. word <laughs> <laughs> of dark dancing here in the local community? Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, I mentioned. Uh, the lockdown uh, a few minutes back and um, and talked a little bit about my story and decision to share my story um, with along with that story I also made the decision um, with that decision underneath it was I want to be a mental health advocate to do that I need to advocate for mental health to do that, I need to share my story, and I need to raise awareness for this issue. And so thinking, problem solving, like how can you raise awareness, and what, what's a good thing 
in my own personal life, dancing like a dork is was actually quite uh, effective and uh, helpful for me in, in feeling better. And so uh, dancing draws attention. It's fun. It's lighthearted. It feels good. So went to the after lockdown, went to the uh, beaches, the beach of uh, Da Nang, and uh, introduced this idea of dork dancing to the community and uh, recorded, actually, yes, Sierra. Sierra and I went to the beach, and she was the, the person behind uh, the, the, the cameras and danced, uh, danced there and then introduced it to the community online. And uh, people were like, oh, yeah, that looks like a lot of fun. Uh, I made the announcement, oh, I'll be uh, <clears throat> dancing every day at 5 o'clock, 5 p.m. For anyone who wants to join, we'll be dancing. Um, and the purpose of our dance is to raise awareness for mental health and do something good for mental health. So just shared it online, tremendous uh, support. Was overwhelmed by the, the positive reactions. It was about 300 or so likes and then 100 comments. I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting that warm of a... a reception from the the expat community here in Da Nang and then uh, that first day um, Thai joined uh, there's just uh, who's a local uh, Vietnamese uh, person here and uh, he had a good time and he's joined most every day since and then the following day someone else joined and then she had a good time so she joined again and then more people joined later and then throughout the course of three weeks it just went from a couple people, strangers dancing together to a group of over 20 people, uh, near 30. Um, and that was a really cool adventure <laughs> because I didn't know if anyone would, be, would even join me. Um, and I was kind of new to the community. So, um, yeah, that, that was just, at that time, I didn't know if dork dancing would work or if anyone would, you know. So it sparked conversation. People understood the purpose. Um, and I think, yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Congratulations on that journey, Ethan. <clears throat> and I remember it didn't sound very authentic, did it? Congratulations <laughs> on that journey. <laughs> 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 no, I remember uh, when we met at Ruth's Cafe, it was probably in the middle of March or start of April, it was raining. And what I remember saying to you, this idea is brilliant because it's simple. Mm. And that's that's why where the idea really can expand the simplicity of it. People can do this anywhere. You can expand mm. dork dancing anywhere. What's your plans? How you really have you've went from dork dancing and there's you know, there's lots of different dork initiatives going on. I'm sitting in Ethan's apartment right now, I'm talking to a half bearded man with a green mental a headband <laughs> on. You, you couldn't write this, folks. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I could say, he hasn't got his bed made. Uh, it's minus one mark. So, Ethan, how, how are you going to... What have you did to expand dork dancing? Because I know you have did loads. Yeah. Um, so, what's happening here in Da Nang is, is quite exciting. Um, it's amazing to see and witness the relationships that have formed... Um, from people who have met dancing. As you mentioned, we've had a number of other dork events and initiatives to, to build and foster community. Um, we have dinners, sports, um, workshops, uh, cycling, uh, 
improv. So there's a bunch of other events that we're doing to, to foster com uh, community and, and build connection. And just witnessing and, and seeing what's come of that has been incredible source of inspiration and gives me more excitement uh, moving forward and looking outside of Da Nang. So a question that I have and carry uh, day to day is how can we replicate what's being done here and bring it elsewhere and lots of creative challenges and being able to do that uh, practicing patience um, but have tremendous excitement about the potential of it spreading um, the vision is to get the world dork dancing for mental health uh, dancing is something that as yeah and dancing like a dork something very simple uh, anyone can do it uh, it's something that I think can 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 spread. Um, you can do it in the privacy of your room. You can do it outside. You can do it with others. There's many different ways to uh, get involved and, and spread. But um, I imagine a, a world where you go to a city and you just need to find the location where people are dork dancing for mental health, and then um, it, it can. Uh, the hope is it, it grows into a global uh, community, and I, I see all of. Uh, the people who are deciding to dance as uh, mental health advocacy work. If you're going out dancing like a dork, you're doing it for a reason. You're doing it to raise awareness. And then um, there's also been tremendous, uh, there's been exciting things that have developed in response to the, the campaign and the awareness. So if, if people are in need, uh, they're, um, if a, a friend or someone that you know is experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, here in Da Nang, people have reached out to Dork Dancing, and that's awareness is step, step one. And so the hope is as the dancing spreads and as the community builds, uh, awareness will grow, and then more resources can be invested in uh, solving challenges in, in mental health. So yeah, that's the vision. Um, and the hope is that it, it can spread to, to other cities, um, other locations. I love the way that you adopted uh, and got straight on Zoom as soon as the lockdown hit. That was, <laughs> it was excellent. Mm. You really, you really did well there. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So online dork dancing, uh, dork dancing uh, in person. You can dance, uh, dance anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> don't do it in the shower folks uh, there's been a couple of injuries so far that's where it all starts <laughs> uh, Ethan I think um, I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing and if you want to find out more about Dork Dancing you can go to Ethan's website dorkdancing.com uh, you can find Dork Dancing on Facebook and People can sign up to be a patron of Dork Dancing and support Ethan because, you know, you, I, I am assuming you don't work on or you, you don't eat fresh air, Ethan. Um, <laughs> so if you would like to become a patron of Dork Dancing, uh, please do so. Go on his website and help out because I'm, I'm sure every little helps. Yeah, tremendously. Yeah, that, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, the, this interview, the, the conversation and your curiosity and interest in, in uh, these stories and just speaking about mental health and advocating for it yourself and all the work that you're doing. Um, I 
maybe there can be a future episode where I can interview you. <laughs> we would love uh, join the queue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, would 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 love to return a, a lot of uh, a lot of questions around <laughs> around around these around this topic. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. I, I do know, we didn't get into uh, the Manic episode, uh, Lost Half half Naked Around the World. Uh, you can read that on Ethan's website. Uh, we didn't get into that, but I related to a lot of the things in there because mm. I, I actually experienced a psychosis um, mm. two years ago uh, in January. Uh, it was induced slightly different to yours, Ethan. Mine mm. was more of a... a, a Three and a half day coke binge, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that was a different kind of psychosis. Yeah. But uh, what you were exper- yeah, what you were mm-hmm. explaining in there, um, I completely got it, and right. it was the, it was without doubt the scariest. And mine was about six to eight hours, I think. But it was the, the scariest experience of my life. Right, horrendous, right. absolutely horrendous experience. Wow. Um, so maybe mm-hmm. we we can talk about that yeah. some other day. Yeah. Um, but eating. It's been a really long podcast, and um, what I want to do, I, I've got other stuff in front of me here, but about the dark dancing stories, people's individual stories that I think we will come back for a future podcast mm. and just devote it completely to those stories. Mm. Because this morning I read, I read Ty's story, Ty's the Vietnamese la, mm. local lad, Lanny's story, and Sierra's story. That's all the time to read. Brilliant. Absolutely amazing, inspiring story. So I think we'll dedicate a, another podcast to that. Um, where we're going to finish the podcast today, there's no place like home. <laughs> now, this is a really beautiful article that you wrote July the 5th. Was that July the 5th last year? Um, I wrote it in 2020. I don't know the exact date. Um, sometimes around then, around then. Maybe a few months earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well... Ethan talks about there's no place like home. And, you know, it really it talks about the, the sale of his home um, in, this is Baltimore. You're in Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah. 21093 on yeah. 2031 Pine Valley Drive. Now, what's really interesting for me was a psychologist I know in Shenzhen wrote a, a really interesting article last year at the start of COVID around this time. And she described Shenzhen as her home. She was born in South Africa. Shenzhen is her home. But the line that really stuck out to me in it, she said, Israel is her ultimate home. And I had a conversation to her about this term, ultimate home, because we're expats and we live a very nomadic lifestyle. And the concept of home is is really interesting because I'm Irish, of course. Um, and you'll never be eaten. Uh, <laughs> I'm Irish and very proud to be Irish, but I don't consider really, I don't see Ireland as my ultimate home or Ireland, I don't view Ireland as as home anymore. Mm. And, you know, when I read this, there's no place like home that you wrote, it, it really just sort of stuck at chord with me. Because um, you, you say here, you see, these are Eaton's words, so you can have a six foot three uh, Baltimore lad's accent. I don't know what a Baltimore accent is. You see, the value of a location, that's Irish. You see, the value of a location is dependent on the values of the memories created there, on the quality of experiences, on the quality of relationships. 2031, where you lived, might not provide the best picture or crazy stories, but it produced the best experiences and relationships built on life's simplest and best joys like snuggling with my cat 
Pewter. Pewter. Mm. Pewter. Mm -hmm. The best things in life are right in front of you. Well, right in front of you right now, for sure. That's me. <laughs> the best things in life are right in front of you at home, wherever that may be for you. I hold a deep respect, love, and appreciation for this place that nowhere in the world can rival. Thanks, Mum and Dad, for raising me here, providing this home for me. Predictably enough, I needed to leave home to truly know what it means when people say there is no place like home. Very powerful, really, really beautiful. Would mm -hmm. you like to comment on that? And I'm sure you're gonna have to mention your mom and Kyoto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those feelings. It's it's hard to describe. Um, but yeah, just maybe returning to the, to that foundation. I feel like that's it's where I grew up. Spent uh, yeah, that house was in my life for 25 years, and I'm only 26. So that's most all of my life except this past year, right? Um, so everything, everything, so much of, uh, of my identity is invested in the experiences that, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, my, my shout out to my parents and my brothers and my friends and my, my cats and, and all those good things. But, um, yeah, it's just, uh, <clears throat> that's where my, uh, source of strength comes from is uh that that background and so yeah we'll forever miss that place but as you're saying your the comments or experience of home um isn't necessarily in in bricks but uh in the memories created around them and so yeah home is home is wherever uh you make it <laughs> in rosie's cafe in hoi an they have something beautiful up on the wall that says home home is not a place it's a feeling mm. yeah I had to say Rosie's Cafe. These girls better give me a free cup of coffee for that. I'll, I'll be down, <laughs> down there tomorrow. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> uh, Ethan, we're going to finish the podcast. I don't really need to tell you that we're going to finish the podcast. We're going to finish the podcast. Mm, all right. <laughs> Fun fact. I have another meeting in half an hour, actually. Mm. Um, I just want to tell you, again, I think you are an inspirational member of the community um i'm in awe of what you have done with dog dancing i really respect how open and honest you have been with sharing your story both on your website uh, and face to face i applaud your courage and I have enormous respect for you as a person and for everything that you're trying to do. Uh, it's clear that you're a very compassionate, empathic guy. And I, I really want people to support what you are doing in the community, to acknowledge and support what you are doing in the community. Please get on board with Ethan and go on to his Go on to his page, and if you can show him in a fiver every month or something, something small, it will really help because initiatives like this, you know, community initiatives like this need your support. So if you're a business owner in the community and you can help Ethan or you're an individual with a, a nice Bitcoin fund, you know, <laughs> throw a bit of throw a few pounds in. And I'm I'm not uh, I'm not asking anybody to do anything I haven't did myself. I told Ethan back in March, I don't have much time to help with this project, but I am happy to throw a small bit of money in each month. So please, um, 
please support Eaton in his initiatives because he's really he's really trying his best to help this community and he's going places. Thank you so much. Really appreciate everything that you're doing and um, admire the way that you are supportive of the community in, in, in very similar similar fashion. And um, yeah, I really appreciate this. This conversation is also very rewarding and, and fun and, and, and great things to talk about. So thanks for the space and time and curiosity and all the work that you're doing as well. You're more than welcome, Heaton. And just so you know, it's not financially rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, Eaton Levy will forever be known as the Virgin of PRS Radio. That is a tag that he's going to have to live with. Well, the Virgin of PRS Radio, Danang and Hoi An. We did have a Virgin of PRS Radio in Shenzhen. That was Paul Delahunty. He's still a Virgin of PRS Radio. <laughs> now, Ethan, that's a tag that you're going to have to live with right. for the rest of your life. Fair enough. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this very first episode of the show. On the next episode, we're going to be talking to Mai McCann. Mai McCann is the founder of the... the I forgot what Mai McCann is. <laughs> uh, the Deaf Centre... Uh, deaf and hard of hearing center in Hoi An. Mai is going to kill me for this. Uh, my mind just went blank there. Wonderful lady. She's been in Hoi An, I think, for 14 years and does amazing work at her center uh, for the deaf and hard of hearing in Hoi An. So I'm going to record a podcast with her. I think it's going to be at the end of February. I'm really looking forward to recording that one. And I'm going to leave you today with a song. Uh, the song is Hurt originally by the Nine Inch Nails. Obviously, we don't have the Nine Inch Nails playing on this show, but we do have, uh, I think his show name is Curtis Goodwolf or something. I, he sent it to me. It's Kurt that used to play down in the bungalow. Uh, <laughs> we made Kurt from Cork. Uh, now, Kurt is up in Hanoi now. Uh, keep safe up there, mate, and I hope things are going well for you. I used to go down to the bungalow all the time to to listen to Kurt play. He's an absolutely outstanding musician, fantastic musician. And since he's went up to Hanoi, you know, the bungalow just hasn't been the same about him. I think it's fallen down. I'm only joking around that. <laughs> <laughs> but this, he sent me down a recording of this song and it's absolutely brilliant. So I hope you enjoy this recording of Hurt by Kurt up in Hanoi. Thank you very much. And that's all. That's all from me. And that's all from Ethan. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. That's my line. <laughs> oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs>
Start again a million. 